It's a reading from Paul's letter to the Philippians. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. After he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethpage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on both of these familiar texts this morning, that you would lead us in understanding that we might be a community that is awed by the humility of our Savior Jesus, the great King, and that we would find ourselves becoming like him. So would you meet us and would you guide us as we think together this morning? In Jesus' name, uh, amen. So we, uh, we've come to the end of Lent and we 
are finishing up our series on the seven deadly sins, and you are thinking, whew, all right, I'm so glad we get to stop talking about sin, the redundancy of sin in our lives and in these sermons. Um, now, so we've looked at these uh, seven deadly sins we've said because it helps us when we can identify the way we sin. In other words, the particular shape of my struggle with God and my struggle with my fellow human being and my struggle in the world. Because in understanding that, in defining that, in seeing that more robustly, I understand how God meets me. <laughs> I understand the shape of grace. I understand how grace comes to me in particular ways rather than a simply a general way, right? Instead of sort of living with God up here somewhere, it's actually I'm on the ground with God in my life. I'm understanding the depth of his love. And we've said that these are merely like paradigms that uh, really persons inside and outside of Christianity, inside and outside of faith traditions, have, have used to talk about destructive ways that human beings live their lives, right? That, there's nothing uniquely per se, uh, there's nothing certainly that limits us to thinking about these inside of the church. The world talks about these kinds of things as well. Um, I love the theologian Robert Jensen. I like his clever definition of sin. He says it's anything that disrupts or ruptures our relationships. Sin is anything that disrupts relationships, that sort of turns them upside down, uh, both our personal relationships but also ultimately our life with God. And these are seven archetypical ways in which you and I sort of compensate for our experiences of loss and struggle and weariness and vulnerability in this broken world. It's how we seek to make a bitter life just a little bit sweeter. That's what these sins describe. They're reactive ways of being a human, of taking control of our own lives and our own destiny and trying to make it sweet. And so that brings us to this final sin that we want to think about this morning, the sin of pride, and it's a sin that many theologians and persons that have reflected on the seven deadlies over the decades have said is, could actually be considered the root of all the others. Uh, now, pride has to do with, um, with our aim, uh, our desire to find and discover a greatness and a superiority for ourselves by ourselves, really. It's about a life turned very inwardly on itself, in a sense. It has to do with uh, this need and this desire to be on top or to be the best, the smartest person in the room, the wealthiest person in the room, the person in most control. Pride. Is that an issue for you <laughs> in any particular way? So that's what we want to think about this morning, and it's interesting to think about it on Palm Sunday because, on the one hand, at the opening of Holy Week, uh, when we intensively begin to think about that life of Jesus, that last week of his life, one of the things that you discover very quickly is that pride is everywhere in Jesus' world. You see it in the religious leaders, you see it in the political leaders, you see it culturally and socially, you know, and, and so on and so forth, right? But it is startlingly absent in Jesus' life. Startlingly absent in Jesus' life. It is nowhere to be found in Jesus' life, certainly in this week that we call holy. 
His life is the opposite of pride. It's a space of radical humility. And this is what is so attractive about Jesus. On the one hand, right, you read the gospel story of his life and you're just so drawn to these moments of interaction between Jesus and all of these different people. But on the other hand, his life is repulsive to us because his life calls us away from all of these strategies for being human, all of these ways of living into our human life that we feel are so normal, so essential, the seven deadly sins, or in this case, pride, our desire to sort of do it ourselves. Jesus' life lacks in every way the kind of controlling pride that fuels our attempts at control, whether our, our path takes us in, di- in the direction of sloth or wrath or greed or gluttony or lust or envy. Rebecca DeYoung in her uh, book on the seven deadlies uh, called Glittering Vices, a wonderful book, by the way, if you've not read it before, please feel free to think about picking it up. But she says this, she says that when we fear that we won't get what we need, our solution is greed. When I fear loss of that which I need, I grab, right? Greed. When we fear that injustice will win out in our world, on the one hand, and maybe in a good way we're concerned about that, but on the other hand, when I am just fear that I'm going to be told no, I'm not going to get what I want in the world, wrath finds a place in my heart. It finds a home in my heart, right? Suddenly, when we fear that we're not worthy, right, in some real sense, we compete enviously with other people for worthiness. We looked at that last week. When we feel needy or empty, we begin to stuff ourselves with pleasure, a form of gluttony. When we feel most alone and disconnected in the world, lust seems like a bridge or a door, a pathway out of that space. When we fear that the cost of love will overwhelm us, we hold everyone including God, at arm's length through our withdrawal, our passivity, a form of sloth. Pride, she says, fuels it all. Now, the beauty of Jesus' life is not just that he doesn't seem to get caught in patterns of lust or greed or gluttony, though he was actually accused of being a glutton, uh, as you read the Gospels, you know those stories, uh, or envy, but It's the absence of pride in his life that is the remarkable missing sin in the person of who Jesus was. Paul writes that though he was God, he did not grasp, he did not exploit his godness for himself. That is the most remarkable line in that letter to the Philippians, I think. Think about, um, so let's think about this this morning. Let's think about uh, this familiar story of Jesus as well as Paul's letter to the Philippians. Two things, the greatness of Jesus and our own. So first, the greatness of Jesus. I want you just at the very beginning to put yourself in the crowd that Palm Sunday. And it helps that we gathered in the courtyard because what are we doing? We're enacting Palm Sunday, right? So imagine yourself there, that first Palm Sunday. There it is. It's beginning to unfold. The Jesus, you know, the disciples have acquired this cult, which always is a strange story, right? You know, you're just going to go up to someone and say, the master has need of it. It just feels like Star Wars. These are not the droids you're looking for. The master needs your cult. You know what I mean? And there he is, Jesus is processing. But imagine yourself there in that space. You're in Palm Sunday. It's happening in front of you. 
what's going through your mind? You're thinking as you watch this Messiah figure ride into Jerusalem, you have to be thinking about all of these stories around his life, right? Maybe you were in the crowd of 5,000 that were fed. Maybe that was you. Maybe, maybe you were the boy who gave up fish and loaves on that day, right? But there it is, that story lingers. Or maybe you were in that house or you've heard the story of the house when the friends sort of lowered their paralyzed friend down through the roof of the, roof of the building, you know, that sort of scary moment, right, in and of itself. But he gets up and he walks, he takes his mat. Or maybe you've heard of the story of the Samaritan woman uh, who was at the well, alienated, isolated, um, but brought in to a new place because Jesus sees her. Maybe you remember the story of blind Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus who everyone around him is trying to shut him up, but Jesus wants to listen to him. Think about being in that crowd and all of these stories about Jesus' life, his interaction what he's done, what he's said, the conversations with the Pharisees, the religious elite, all of these things linger in your mind. What have you seen in these stories? You've seen wholeness. You've seen marginalized people brought into a space of community with God and with one another afresh. You've seen healings of various sorts. You've seen people that are hungry fed, you've seen thirsty people drink, you've seen all of these many acts of Jesus that are what? Producing in some real way the world that we all long for. A world that works, a world in which love prevails, a world in which hungry people aren't hungry anymore, a world in which love prevails, a love in which uh, that, that produces sort of intimate connections inside of community, a world that is characterized by justice and goodness and truth and beauty. And so you see Jesus coming in on this cult and you have to be thinking in your minds, you know, you have to be thinking, who, would, who wouldn't want more of that? Who wouldn't want that world to prevail? Luke says that the people discern Jesus' greatness. That's an interesting thing to observe here on Palm Sunday. I very quickly run to the fickleness of their joy, right? The fickleness of their cheer because we know what happens later in the week with the crowd. But stop there for just a minute. Luke says they, they saw that he was great. And it wasn't just that he looked great. It's that this is a man who did great things. And the people that connected with him experienced the beauty of that greatness. Of course they did. Of course they wanted more of that. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. And if you go and look at your biblical scholars and you read the commentaries around this, immediately, you know, we get excited because this event keys in some sense. It's tagged in some sense to a text like Zechariah 9, which is a prophetic word about this very moment, it would seem. Or it's tagged to something like Psalm 118, where similar references are being made. In other words, these the things that Jesus is, are in, is enacting in this event sort of plays with the memory of all of these Jewish people that are there in that community. They know this is going to happen around the Messiah. 
And maybe it's even keyed, likely in their imagination, to the revolt of Judas Maccabees that he led when he defeated and drove out occupying, right, the occupying uh, conquerors. You know, he, th- there's this memory of things that have happened culturally that linger in their imagination over the centuries. And here comes the king riding on a donkey. Now, here's the thing about donkeys. The thing is just very simply this. A king that rides into a city on a donkey is asserting his kingship. He is not defending it. He's asserting his kingship. He's not defending it. Because it presumes victory. It presumes that this is taken for granted. It presumes that he is king. And Jesus comes in on this donkey in this moment. But the weird thing about this moment is that the city that Jesus rides into bears no signs of the defeat of an oppressor. (laughs) It bears no signs of the defeat of the oppressor, right? Only the continued power of the religious political leaders, only the social oppression, only the cultural realities that existed in that day, the political oppression, right? This is the reality of the city that Jesus is riding into. It is a city in which the human beings that have power hold it in unjust ways. It is a city in which the people that have power hold it pridefully. They hold it toward themselves. In other words, all of the interactions are about retention of power, not giving it away. People have this longing for the world they've seen emerge around Jesus, and they clearly get that the assertion, they get the symbolic ties to the scripture and to history of their own history and they fall in line and they begin to do what you would do in that moment. They're casting down their coats, which is essentially they're rolling out the red carpet for this king and they're ripping off palm branches and they're celebrating the revolution of the kingdom of God. They're excited. What would be going through your mind in that moment? Would that be a desirable Reality, would it seem like an impossible reality? Would you be wondering where the army is in this revolt? Would you be wondering, you know, where are the arms that need to be taken up to actually get Rome out of the way? What would you be thinking in this particular moment as you waved your palm branches and you threw your cloaks down? What would you want in this space? Luke tells this story to the early church, highlighting that Jesus leads differently. His peace comes by a different kind of revolt. The opening quote from Henry Nouwen is an interesting quote because he reminds us that though we serve a Savior who distinctly and always gave up power, that Christianity, the church, Christian leaders have always struggled with this Jesus. And we always find ourselves not liking the way he did it because we grasp pride. Just after this text, Jesus will weep over Jerusalem because there are no leaders. They're like sheep without a shepherd. In fact, there are in Jerusalem many leaders, right? There are many leaders. They just aren't leaders in the pattern of Jesus. 
the Roman occupation, the religious leaders, they all have a great deal of gravitas with the people, as we'll see as we walk through the events of Holy Week. They hold power really tightly, and they manipulate the people to their ends, to their vision of what reality and what a kingdom ought to look like. There are no leaders of peace who lead without pride for the sake of others. Only Jesus, who though God, as Paul puts it, did not regard his identity as something to be exploited for himself, but he emptied himself, and that is what this whole week is about. The full way in which Jesus empties himself and gets beneath, gets below the full human experience, even of death. Dying not from natural causes, but as a victim, as someone abused, as someone unjustly accused and put to death, experiencing the full weight, if you will, of the human revolt against God's own self. That's why Jesus is here, to get beneath all of that. Jesus is great, but he doesn't grasp at his greatness. He is exactly who he is before God and before us for the sake of us. He loves us. Now, secondly, what about our greatness? Do you know who you are? (laughs) Do you know who you are? Do you know what it means for you to be a human being? And do you know more particularly what it means for you to be the human being that you are. And do you live with that reality with real freedom in the world? Do you live before God? What about your greatness? Thomas Merton um, said that humility consists in being precisely the person you actually are before God. There's something really beautiful about that because when I think about humility, sometimes I think that I just have to be sort of negative about talk, right? I just have to sort of be self-deprecating in some way. I have to sort of draw attention to who I'm not. I have to talk about myself in a one-down kind of way. You know what that means, right? It means you're in a conversation with someone and you just are considered, you think denying of yourself means you pretend that you're someone that you're not, right? That you just step down. It's a kind of false humility that we take on. Merton says, no, humility consists of you being exactly who you are, the person that you are, uniquely before God, before God. God sees the person that you are. God celebrates your life, your body, we've even said. Do you know who you are? In this Holy Week, we see the fullness of Jesus' ride into Jerusalem, this great chapter of his own life, greatness not grasped but given away. And the point of that, the author of Hebrews says, is that he did this for the joy that was set before him. And what is that joy? It's the joy of his kingdom come. It's the joy of all that the crowd at its best moment wanted, right? That world of justice, goodness, truth, beauty, happening and lasting and enduring forever in the, in the face and in the presence of this king. Jesus, for the joy that is set before him, the joy of human beings restored to their truest selves before God. 
their truest selves before God. You, me, who are you before God? Do you live before God? If you've uh, ever tried to practice a form of prayer that, uh, that we call the Ignatian, that's called the Ignatian Examine, in which you spiritually sort of take a look back, right? It's, you know, we, we say that uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? You know, we, we say that saying. And so the Ignatian Examine encourages us to take that seriously for just a moment, right? And sort of hit pause on our day at a day's end and to ask the Holy Spirit, would you help me reflectively think about this past day? Like, what happened in my past day? What, what happened in Tuck's life, you know, when I got up to the time I'm going to bed? What happened in that space of time? So during an integration exam, and you're looking for two things. You're looking for spaces of consolation, which he would define as a space in which you, um, you experienced maybe yourself as you truly are, as a son or daughter of God. You lived in love in the presence of God before your neighbor in a way that just felt whole, free, right? You've had those moments. I've had those moments. I love consolation. I wish there were more of those moments, right? Consolation. But maybe also he, Ignatius would encourage us to think about spaces of desolation, and that's the opposite, right? Those are those moments that happen in the day that maybe you'd, maybe you'd use the language, the psychological language, you'd say, well, I was triggered, right? And what do we mean when we say that? We mean that I was triggered by some, someone, something, some context, and I just didn't feel like myself. I lived reactively. I was angry, or I, maybe you took up one of the seven deadly sins as a pattern of life. In other words, in a space of des- desolation, We are not living as we truly are meant to be before the face of God. We're not living like a son or a daughter of God that is beloved. We're living some other way. When I look at my life in the spaces of desolation, I had a a couple yesterday. I probably already had a few this morning. You know, when when I hit pause and I start to sort of take a deep dive and I say, what's going on there, Tuck? What's happening there when you're not feeling one with the Lord, you're not feeling love toward your neighbor, you're reacting, you're fearful, you're anxious in some space of life. What's going on there? Very often, I find pride. I was thinking about a situation just yesterday in which I'm I'm conscious of a person that I find difficult and challenging in my life. Maybe you don't have people like that in your lives, but I do sometimes. And I was in this conversation and I thought, why did why did that bother me so much? Why did I why did I feel like I constantly had to defend myself? Why did I feel like I'm in that conversation and all I can think about is how do I take control? How do I take control? Pride right? Very often you'll discover the pattern of life beneath a desolation is that you are prideful. You believe your own wisdom. You believe the wisdom of the broken world around you. And you want to take control through enacting that wisdom somehow, some way. Pride. We don't rest as we are made and reborn to be in the presence of God. We don't live into our truest identity as sons and daughters of God. You are a beloved child of God. 
We've said this often throughout this series. God delights in you. When he looks at you as a person, not as a category of human beings, but when he looks at you as a person, he says, I delight in you. I, I love you. I love you. What is it like to feel connected to a God like that? In this Philippians text, Paul writes about the story of Jesus' love, his greatness, his humility, in order to call us into our own, right? We get, you know, there's this beautiful story that Paul writes about, about Jesus, this wonderful hymn-like poetry in this letter to the Philippians in which he's describing the mind of Jesus, who although God did not grasp, right? But the point of that is, is to move us to understand that that is also your destiny, to live as Jesus lived, to love as you have been loved. Verse 3, in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5, have Jesus' frame of mind. Do you know who you are before the face of God? Do you know how he views you? All of this is possible, I think Paul reminds us, because of the encouragement of Jesus that he says in verse 2, right? The consolation of his love, the sharing of his spirit, his compassion, his sympathy. His life of love was real. Not imagine, not pretend. It culminates in this holy week. We see it most beautifully and exaggeratedly manifest in everything that Jesus does in this coming week of his life history. He loves you. It was real. It was for you. Are you living in front of it? Or does fear of loss and all the broken wisdom of the world, does it captivate you and hold you captive? At the very end of this text, Paul reminds us and assures us that the end of a humble life like this is secure. In other words, God will raise you up with this Jesus whom he's raised up. It's secure and it's true. It's a true pathway for our own human expression because of what God did with Jesus' humble life. He raised him up. He exalted him. He gave him the highest name that is above every name. He raised him up, but that's a story for next week. In other words, Paul says this is a story about life that you can actually trust. So when you're in those spaces of desolation, those are the contexts in which you and I are called upon to remember Jesus' love for us, his humble, dying love, so that we in that context might humbly consider another before ourselves. We might love as Jesus has loved us. This story of peace will endure, Paul says, and one day every knee will bend before it, which is not a way of angrily asserting the truthfulness of Christianity, but it is really honestly a way of encouraging the Christian community 
that is trying to live out this life of love in a world that is oppositional to it. And what Jesus is, is telling us, what I think Paul is telling us here about Jesus is that this is the path that wins. This is the side of history that is the right side of history. This is where reality is going to. So now practice this same love. This is where your life belongs. It's the trajectory of all things. It's not an elaborate game of pretend, this consolation of Jesus' love. It's not something we're trying to whip up into our being. It's real because of all of the things that happen in this week. His dying love, his rising love. So this Palm Sunday, what about us? What happens in Jesus' pilgrimage into your own heart? How will you respond? How will you wave your palm branches as he approaches your life story? Let me leave you with a poem by Malcolm Geit, one of our favorite poets in our household. This is his Palm Sunday poem, and he writes this. He says, now to the gate of my heart, Jerusalem, the seething holy city of my heart, the Savior comes, but will I welcome him? Oh, crowds of easy feelings make a start. They raise their hands, get caught up in the singing, and think the battle won. Too soon they'll find the challenge, the reversal he is bringing changes their tune. I know what lies behind, the surface flourish that so quickly fades, self-interest and fearful guardedness, the hardness of the heart, its barricades, and at its core, the dreadful emptiness of a perverted temple. Come, Jesus. So as we go into this week, this holy week, let that be the cry of your heart. Jesus, come. Come. March on. Come and make me whole. Come and make us whole. Come and establish your kingdom forever. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these words of scripture and we continue in our time of worship, that you would enlarge our imagination for the imagination of Jesus Christ, that we would want what he wants and desire what he desires, and we would find ourselves to be recipients of his divine love. So would you meet us this morning and lift us into a place where we already begin to bend our knees to the reality of his great love and his kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.